take all of the development of heavy industry, all of humanity has seen since we have made steel industrially. All of that accumulated capacity to 2000 took you to round about a trillion tons a year in terms of capacity. China, in a single decade, added another trillion on top of that. If that doesn't send shockwaves through the global political economic system, nothing will. This is RJ McGill from the American Academy in Berlin, and you're listening to Beyond the Lecture. Adam Tooze is a professor of history and director of the European Institute at Columbia University. A specialist in 20th century German economic history, he was at the Academy on March 13, 2018 to deliver this semester's Marcus Bierich lecture, The 2008 Global Crisis Approaches to a Future History. Shortly before his evening lecture, we sat down with Adam Tews to ask a few questions, beginning with what his forthcoming book will do to put the 2008 crisis in broader historical perspective. The key issue, I think, is to understand the relationship between the crisis, which we think of as being a Wall Street crisis, an American crisis, and the crisis which we think of as being European, which starts later, which starts with Greece, which starts with the Eurozone in 2010. And to actually try and show how these two things are interconnected and in fact again go one step further and to also ask about how the famous threatening return of geopolitics, so the crisis in Eastern Europe and in the Ukraine which burst onto the TV screens in 2013, how that also might be related to this earthquake uh, in 2008. To understand the, the crisis of 2008, we really need to um, be clear about the mechanism that's driving uh, the undoing and the unraveling in 08. And the, the focus of the media, for very obvious reasons, was relentlessly on the problem of mortgages, of the housing market, of securitization, of CDO, CDO squared. Wall Street Bank uh, and, Goldman yeah. Sachs duped clients with rotten mortgage investments that Goldman knew were likely to fail. Bundling mortgages from subprime loan specialists like Countrywide Financial and then selling them to investors as bonds, it largely failed to address financial problems it knew about. But at root, I think, one could say that the more fundamental problem um, was the classic problem of all banks, which is that banks borrow short-term huge quantities of money to lend long-term. And so whether or not they engage in financial engineering, whether or not they put their money into houses or the dot-com bubble or tulips or whatever object um, of, of speculation and investment they pick, the particular problem that banks have is not so much that their investments could go wrong, but that their funding could suddenly disappear. And then it really doesn't matter whether you've invested in profitable investments or unprofitable investments, you're still um, stuck and your bank is still going to fail because no bank can keep all of the money on hand, which it has borrowed from its um, funders if it's going to function as a bank. And that's what happened in 2008. And it's not the problem of, you know, semi-bankrupt, undocumented people in the United States taking out loans they should never have had. That kind of low-rent, bottom-feeding problem is not what's causing the crisis in 08. It's the most sophisticated players adopting ever more sophisticated techniques of bank funding. So where was the money going? if not into big banks. They had to put it into something safe, so they put it into treasuries. So this is the exact opposite of how we thought the crisis was going to go down. Because the fantasy that you know all the great and the good in macroeconomics had in 06, 07, is that we were going to have a classic 
current account treasury funding problem in the biggest economy world, the United States. So this wasn't going to be Thailand, this wasn't going to be Mexico, this was going to be the US. And the Chinese and all other global investors would sell off their US treasuries, the interest rates for the US treasuries would spike, the American government would face a fiscal crisis and the dollar would tank. And exactly the opposite happens in 08, because what's going down is not the government funding mechanism, because government treasuries, despite all the bad press about American government debt, it's the safest thing you can buy in the world, certainly the safest large asset class you can buy in the world. So at this moment, what's happening is not that um, central government funding is breaking down, but that bank funding is breaking down. And as you say, the question is, where do you put that money that needs to be parked somewhere? And the obvious place to put it is treasuries. So the costs of funding for the American government, even though it's running this epic deficit in 08-09, actually go down because money is fleeing to safety. So this is a private sector crisis, not the public sector crisis that um, was anticipated in the US and is, of course, how the Eurozone crisis has been described from start to finish, notably by the German government, which has constructed the entire crisis of the Eurozone as a question of feckless public finance with Greece as the sort of sacrificial lamb. Speaking of Germany, I asked Hughes about his assessment of the German economy now and how solid the country looks heading into the future. Well, I mean, on, on the face of it, the German economy is in good shape. There's very low unemployment, uh, modest overall economic growth, uh, booming exports to strong and prosperous emerging market economies where Germany has a particular edge. They sell cars, they sell high-quality cars, they sell mechanical engineering products in a world in which China is the main driver of global growth. You're in a sweet spot. So there's no question at all that the German economy, compared to many of its European rivals, is in relatively good shape. But I add the proviso relatively, because the question is, of course, how else could it be doing? And it could, I think, in most people's judgments, be doing better than it is. And it would be doing better if it was not operating under the constraints of the debt break. In other words, the Schwarzer Null, the zero deficit policy um, that Schäuble and his predecessor, Per Steinbrück, put in place. In Germany, I'm, I'm, I'm always working for generosity because any generosity of or any European solidarity is in the best interest of Germany and Germany's future. We are not so generous because our future <laughs> depends on the success of Europe. Otherwise, we will have no future. Restoring German fiscal balance, as they would see it, and running down the deficit and running up a surplus so as to enable Germany to pay its debt down. Now, that's all very well from the point of view of fiscal sustainability, and it is sold to the German public as a contribution to sustainability. But that's a bit like a family saying that they won't borrow to fund their kids' education because it would involve running up debt. Debt, if it's invested in crucial repairs to public infrastructure, is not wasteful, frivolous, you know, credit card debt that no one in their right mind would run up. It's a crucial contribution to funding future investment and future prosperity. And that's where I think the rub is with Germany. The reason why Germany has the huge trade surpluses that it does is not just that its exports are great, but its imports are too low. And its imports are low because domestic demand in the German economy is repressed. And a big part of that is very low levels of domestic investment. This looks like the 50s and 60s. But in the 50s and 60s, Germany had relatively balanced budget. Um, relatively large exports and a trade surplus. It also, however, had enormous domestic investment, which was transforming Germany, making reconstruction 
urbanizing Germany. That's not what's happening now. As we know, German public infrastructure outside the public eye in many of the regions of Germany, the more depressed bits of both the post-industrial West and even more in the East, is decrepit. Um, and public spending on things like schools and education are below the kind of standards that one would expect from a country as rich as Germany is. A few days before we sat down with twos, Donald Trump had introduced tariffs on steel and aluminum. It'll be 25% for steel, it'll be 10% for aluminum, and it'll be for a long period of time. We asked twos how protectionist moves like this have fared in the past, and how this new iteration of protectionism might affect U.S. and global growth. The Trump administration is a manifest form of political nationalism that's manifesting itself in economics as well. Uh, and America has a large trade deficit that they want to do something about. Uh, and American manufacturing has hemorrhaged jobs um, since the uh, late 1990s. And some of those people voted Trump. Um, so you can kind of see how this picture adds up to a kind of gloomy vision of the 1930s. The conclusion from that, I think, across the vast majority of economic research is that the sort of tariffs that Trump is engaged in are inexcusably stupid. They do not add up to a coherent strategy for the defense of American industry because there's far more steel and aluminum users in the United States in industry amongst blue collar workers than there are people who make steel and aluminum. The same for coal, right? The number of workers who work in coal is tiny. There are more, I think, personal trainers than coal miners, right? So this is not a program for a coherent industrial strategy or the re-energization of the American base, let alone this kind of fantasy of reconstructing the American middle class, which actually in European times is the working class. None of this makes any sense from that point of view. There's no question. Uh, and it could indeed end very badly if it spiraled spiraled outwards. Another way of looking at it is that it's a completely inadequate, admittedly inadequate, incoherent response to something historically truly spectacular, which makes this moment quite unlike the 1930s. And the truly spectacular thing is Chinese growth. So if you look at the steel industry or the aluminum industry, China since 2000 has doubled the total capacity for steel production in the world. So take all of the development of heavy industry, all of humanity has seen since we have made steel industrially, which Krupp and people like that started doing in the mid-19th century. Now, all of that accumulated capacity to 2000 took you to round about a trillion tons a year in terms of capacity. China, in a single decade, added another trillion on top of that. With aluminum, it's even more dramatic. They something like, I think, tripled total global capacity. Now, if that doesn't send shockwaves through the global political economic system, nothing will. And it's only our blindness to the material reality of the production processes we live in, because we think we live in a weightless economy in which the only thing that counts is the internet. So the tragedy of our current moment is that the, is not that we're going back to the 1930s, but that we're completely, the Trump administration is completely refusing to face the problems of the 20s first century, which are some kind of a grand bargain between the United States and China over climate change. That's the whole deal, right? If, if they can do that, then maybe humanity in its current form has some kind of prospect of stabilizing the way we do things now in the next 50 years. And if they can't do that, then really the scenario is, is truly spectacular. And around things like steel and aluminium, we should be talking not about jobs, we should be talking about emissions. It's a really sort of mind-bending situation in which we are. The American government is fixated on restoring heavy industrially, maximally producing jobs for tiny numbers of people at a moment where we clearly need a bargain with the Chinese over 
because it's about their living standards and the question of how we square their phenomenal growth and now that of India and Indonesia and all these other large Asian giants with the environmental envelope, which we late in the day have suddenly discovered, you know, really matters. We shouldn't be looking back. Historians would be, as it were, contributing to our confusion if we were warning people about the Great Depression. I mean, that's the least of our problems in some ways. That was Adam Tooze, a professor of history and director of the European Institute at Columbia University. He was at the American Academy on March 13, 2018, to deliver a lecture on the 2008 global economic crisis, the subject of his forthcoming book, Crashed, to be published in August by Viking. You can watch Tooze's lecture on our website, americanacademy.de, where you can also hear more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews with distinguished American political scientists economists, historians, writers, and journalists. You can also get the latest content from the American Academy on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Vimeo. Beyond the Lecture is a production of the American Academy in Berlin and is produced by William Glucroft. I'm your host, R.J. McGill. Thanks for listening.